All right, everybody, don't drop that fast forward button. The sponsorship roll call is about to begin. Energy Consulting Limited provides complete project management and general contracting services to a variety of private sector clients on both commercial and residential construction projects. They act as the owner's representatives through the planning, design, budgeting, scheduling, construction, and occupancy processes. Clients appreciate their open, honest, and flexible approach to achieving their project goals. Although they're located in Surrey, BC, Energy works on projects all over the province, including the growing cities of the north and the beautiful coastal towns of Vancouver Island. They're always excited to explore new places and develop relationships with professionals wherever their clients' interests may be. Abacus North is a firm that specializes in mortgage banking solutions for complex projects. In addition to providing financing solutions in a traditional mortgage broker capacity, Abacus North provides direct loans that range from $2 million to $25 million. On a syndicated basis, they provide mortgage banking solutions up to $300 million. In most cases, their in-house capital solutions can bridge financing gaps that traditional lenders are unable to service. They specialize in providing land acquisition loans, construction financing for large-scale developments, income-producing properties, and single-purpose facilities. With a portfolio that includes high-rise, mid-rise, and low-rise condominiums, townhouse developments, shopping centers, agricultural properties, industrial developments, and medical marijuana facilities, Abacus North is at the forefront of creative mortgage banking solutions with a focus on fostering long-term relationships. They are a multifaceted organization that services domestic and international clients with their mortgage banking needs. Complex financing solutions require analytical thinking well beyond a typical mortgage broker relationship. As a result, they focus on providing engineered solutions for their client. Their key differentiation strategy is that they assist clients in actively managing the capital stack in order to minimize borrowing costs while maximizing flexibility. Abacus North focuses on national and global opportunities. Ascentia CPA has a team of new-gen chartered professional accountants that are dedicated to advancing companies using expertise combined with emerging technologies. The team at Ascentia will implement the latest accounting technologies, allowing you to not only run a business, but to run a smart business that will excel in your industry. Their focus is to provide growth-centric, value-added, and timely accounting services for businesses, as well as individuals across Canada. Unlike standard accounting firms, by embracing cloud-based software, the team at Ascentia will provide you with real-time accounting information on a secure platform that is accessible anywhere at any time, allowing you to make better informed decisions and gain more controlled overview of your financial data. The reliability and expertise you will experience with the professionals at Ascentia will assist you in the preparation of corporate and personal tax returns, financial statements, bookkeeping, government filings, tax and estate planning, as well as business advisory services. For more information on the advantages of online accounting and to book a complimentary meeting online, be sure to visit ascentiacpa.ca. We are All right, everybody, we're sitting down here with uh, Ariel Jarvis. So she's a, a Langley-based practitioner, and as of course, we're on uh, Eastern Medicine Month on, uh, on We Are I, so um, she's everything Eastern as well. So 
just like typical to every podcast, we're going to start getting to know her a little bit. So, Ariel, first and foremost, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Um, the one thing that I've been kind of discovering um, with people who have practiced Eastern medicine, who are Eastern philosophy based, is they they carry certain characteristics um, from childhood on. So. If you can give us a little bit of brief, like who you were, like growing up, like family history and all that stuff, because I just want to see if you carry those same characteristics as well. Sure. Yeah. Um, I was actually homeschooled from kindergarten to grade 12. I graduated a year early. I was a prima ballerina, um, and so the reason why I was homeschooled was because I was actually in a ballet academy, and I became a ballet instructor, and I was I had the passion for ballet. I ended up getting injured, and so I decided that I was going to no longer use my body to pursue a passion, I was going to use my brain. And so what kind of uh, made me pursue that uh, path even more was my mom. And so my mom actually was diagnosed with multiple brain tumors and uh, rheumatoid arthritis and just like the list of health conditions just went on and on and on. And because we were so close, she homeschooled me, we were best friends, it really caused me to look at our medical system a little bit differently because the reason why she was actually, um, her, her, her situation had actually like progressed um, into like really, really, really aggressive tumor was because uh, her file actually was misplaced. So after they had found out about the tumor, her file was misplaced and then eventually the doctors had to backpedal and then treatment had to happen. So I just kind of saw the way she just kind of got slept, swept underneath the rug and I was just like, really fired up about it, not just because she was my mom, but because that was a, a human being, that was a life. So I was like, kind of thinking, well, what if, what would I would do if I was a doctor? So I was thinking all the things that I would do and, and how I have a real passion for people. And uh, when I got a little bit older, um, I decided to go enroll in UFE and I was gonna be a medical doctor. I thought Western medicine was the only way. So I uh, went in, in with my Bachelor of Science I majored in biochemistry, minored in psychology, and then I actually got into AUA, which is the American University of Antigua, realized it wasn't something I wanted to do anymore because I was taught that you can't actually prescribe food or you know exercise because that's out of your scope of practice, but you can for sure prescribe pills. So I was like, that has its place, and I really, really respect and appreciate it, but I think that Western medicine and Eastern medicine should have a symbiotic relationship. So I kind of looked into uh, Eastern medicine a bit because that's actually the practice that my mom used to get better. She talked about alkaline diets, she talked about this and that around the house, and then I looked a little further into the practitioner that she was working with, because I started off like pretty young. A lot of the stuff she was doing at home health-wise kind of like bypassed me. So then I actually reached out to her practitioner with Eastern medicine and dug a little deeper and then actually went over to the island for schooling there to learn about you traditional go? Chinese medicine. Um, island Health Works on the okay. island. Yeah, and then I went over to CSNN in uh, Vancouver and Quantum University for my uh, for my PhD in natural nutrition. So I'm currently just finishing that off to become a doctor of natural nutrition. Um, got about less than a year left and I'm just really looking forward to being able to talk about nutritional science on a molecular level and how it interacts positively negatively with our body and our chemistry. Um, people don't realize that there is a whole holistic approach to things. You want to make sure that you are dealing with the body, mind, spirit. A lot of times people have the perfect diet, but they're dealing, they're not dealing with their underlying emotional issues. And that suppression can actually create, um, 
an issue with your organs, an issue with your brain, an issue with your body, and just overall chemistry of the physiological of the body. And so there's just like so much that I was tapping into, and that's why I became like a holistic practitioner. Oh, that's amazing. And there's always some kind of like a little bit of backstory, but the one thing that I find is the, the common bridge, and this is something I was talking about with um, Sarah Pritchard from London, she's uh, like an educator and practitioner, is that it seems the common denominator for everybody's the arts. It's like it doesn't shock me at all like when you said that you were a prima ballerina because it like it coincides with that immediately like everybody because it's the the free mind the free spirit that allows us to be able to understand that there is options outside of like like western medicine or you know like our western way of life like it allows us to be able to have a lot more of an open perspective and open approach saying that there might be something more out there besides something that I've just been the system I've grown up in and it allows you to be able to challenge the concepts and feel okay challenging them because we perceive things to be a lot more open and a lot more creative and I think like that's like a real big base for Eastern medicine and Eastern philosophy. I can see that. Yeah. And the discipline. I mean, it takes a lot to stay at home where there's a lot of fun things to do and sit there on a sunny day, on a beautiful day or whatever and do your own homework when there's no deadlines, there's no one watching you, and you have to do that for 12 years. Um, and then having the attention span to do that, right? And to teach yourself, and when you get stuck, to reteach yourself. Um, so there's a lot of discipline that came from that, and a lot of discipline that also came from being a ballerina. So, so how, how long has this whole process been like, you know, like from when you started to where you're at right now, because you still have a year left to go, like yeah. what was the time frame there? Um, so because I'm going for my doctorate, um, Basically, I've been in school for since 2010. Yeah, full time, wow. even through summers. Coming on a decade. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Are you are you like excited to be able to just finish it all off? Or are you just are you a career student or? I want to keep going. I want to get into uh, concussion therapy. I want to get into PTSD. I want to get into uh, the uh, psychology of how you know what make like what wires us to do what we do on a on a level of. Uh, reaction and um, and also not reaction right so, so let me ask you this like like clearly you're passionate about it clearly you've seen both sides and you're obviously educated so let me ask you why you think that we got so heavily distorted into like one component like where we only validate Western medicine like we just don't really want to get outside of that that lane and we were forced to kind of stay in that lane when we know that there's these other options out there that have their time and place too but why are we so stubborn like why how did we get here and why are we so stubborn i wouldn't say stubborn i would say impatient so we want a quick fix we're in a fast driven environment and eastern medicine's been around for 2000 years whereas western medicine's actually been around for 200 years but it is heavily heavily funded and so who are you going to listen to the quiet dog or the louder dog and things that are funded tend to be biased. And so I'm not saying that Western medicine is bad or, e or Eastern medicine is better. I'm just saying that there's a role that they both play. Western medicine needs to stay on its end where it is more for treatment of a symptom, um, almost like a band-aid, right? Um, you are depressed, here's an antidepressant. But I go to the root, which is Eastern medicine. It takes more time. And a lot of people are impatient and they don't want to take the time to get to the root because the depression could be even from a serotonin imbalance, gut health. People would never link a transverse colon inflammatory response to depression. Mm -hmm. So there's always going back, backpedaling, 
to the root and people want the quick fix. But like, how do we get there? Because we got there by our Western way of thinking and our Western way of life. Like where it's like, I need it, I need it now. Like, like what's my quick fix? Like, where's my pill? Like, like how did we, because we didn't get here as like an individual. We got here as a culture. And now we're kind of stuck there as a culture. Yeah. And you know, as, as much as we know, like, like, yeah, it is like, you know, whoever can bark the loudest, you know, like is going to get the most attention, but we can't deny it. And like, and like you said, these systems have been around for thousands of years versus hundreds of years. The rest of the world, there's a vast majority of the world that's operating on this system. And there's even countries who have incorporated Western and Eastern medicine. Like one of the sponsors of this show, he's from Sri Lanka and he said, like, that's what it was like growing up. You went to the doctor, two doctors came in, Western and Eastern. And it was just like, Western was like, does this need a quick fix right now? Like, is your bone sticking out of your arm? Mm-hmm. You know, and like the Eastern medicine is like, where are we going to go to be able to prevent this long term? Mm-hmm. You know, like, so, but I just don't understand why, if we're starting to understand these things, if this is where we've always been, like, why are we having such a tough time getting back there? Um, a lot of it has to do with the pharmaceutical industry. It's a billion dollar a year industry. Um, it was designed to keep people sick, not to get people better. And people are on something called polypharmacy, meaning they take a pill for a pill, for a pill, for a pill. People are, and basically what has happened is due to the fast pace, the industrial age, people just can't keep up. People have to sacrifice the quality of their food to be able to take on more hours, or, you know, there's just, there's so many things that people will have to compromise. They'll have to compromise on their money. They'll have to compromise on their time, their food, their, a lot of different um, things that they would introduce into the body. And so, yeah, like, sorry. So I, I just don't know, like, I don't know the actual time frame when the split happened, but I just know that the split happened for good reasons, but there was also some maybe business reasons as well. Well, so let's uh, let's kind of peel or peel the onions this way. Is like, what do you think it's going to take to be able to fix this? Because, like, the number one reason why that you're here and all these people keep coming on the show is because I want this message together. Like, it like more people need to be screaming this and they're able to get people to understand is, like, not only are there other options, but these other options are extremely valid. No matter how much we're coached to discredit them. And like, I even feel like, and nothing, like I said, I don't mean to not question medicine too much. I know it has its time and its place, but I have heard a lot of um, doctors of like Western care, like they'll knock Eastern practices, mm-hmm. like, you know, big time. So it's, it's even the people should be encouraging us to be able to seek every avenue for our healthcare to be able to get what's best for us aren't even doing that. I just feel like the, the irresponsibility from a few different sides comes into play. But you know, like, what do you think it's going to take to swing the pendulum back to get to people like this, the common, you know, everyday folks saying like, I'm going to go seek an Eastern practitioner versus a Western pac- practitioner because I know and I can feel comfortable that I'm still doing good for me and I don't have to feel guilty for exploring this avenue. I think it's always good to have multiple practitioners. I mean, it takes a village to raise a child. Well, it takes a army of practitioners to take care of your health. So you never want to just focus on just the one side, in my opinion. Um, But I I do find that Eastern medicine practitioners are are more open-minded, whereas Western medicine practitioners are very closed-minded. Not all of them, but there are a lot of closed-minded ones, and it's honestly because they're uneducated and they're kind of egotistical. They went to school for a very long time, they are very proud of their career, but 
they don't want to be open-minded to the nutritional facts. Uh, food is medicine, and all of their pharmaceutical products are made from herbs, bottom line. It's just been tampered with, and they've added chemicals to it to uh, change the configuration of the molecular structure. Now, yes, the medications do work, but they also pose on a lot of different other health issues, right? So I would agree that, you know, in time, because people, because our audience is getting more educated, people are going to start to realize that the medical system is a little bit skewed and it's also a little bit, um, there's some things missing. It's a little bit flawed. So let me ask you, because you kind of briefly touched on this, and it's something that I think that we all know or more people are starting to understand is that you can be doing everything right. Like you could be working out your, you know, two, three, four, five days a week, whatever you want to do, you know, making your this, that, next thing, you're on your quote unquote perfect diet, all this kind of stuff, but you're not losing any weight. Mm-hmm. You know, but now we're starting to understand how much like we emotionally hold on to weight. Mm-hmm. You know, like like what are some of the things that you've seen over the, the course of time of like you practicing and like through your research and your schooling like like how profound is this like because i really want to highlight this topic because it's something that i'm really starting well not just starting but like something i've been promoting for a long time that you know like we need to understand how much of like this comes into play like our mental health actually is a representation of like our physical being and vice versa so yeah. break it down for us okay well if you're looking to lose weight for example and you can't um, and you're doing everything right to a T. Um, a lot of times what people don't realize is we're living in a very toxic world. That could be toxic people, toxic food, toxic water. And so the four pillars of health, the first one is water. People are not getting enough. They're like, oh, I drink my eight glasses a day. You actually need four liters of water if you weigh over 100 pounds. So that's one liter of water for every 50 pounds you weigh, one liter of water for every uh, hour of exercise, one liter of water if you're a carnivore, and one liter of water if it's hot outside. So right off the bat, we're not drinking enough water. Second thing is there is a sympathetic and a parasympathetic central nervous system. We need to make sure that we are always in the rest and digest state when we're eating. Otherwise, the hydrochloric acid in the stomach doesn't get um, raised, and the digestive enzymes from the pancreas won't get secreted properly, and you won't be able to absorb your food properly into the proper units for absorption. So it's really good to have that fire burning. And a lot of times you'll see people, you go to a restaurant all the time, they're eating and drinking at the same time. So what you're essentially doing is you are putting water on the fire. So you wanna make sure, is there, I call it this like the, uh, the basic habits of, you know, of eating, is don't eat and drink at the same time and don't eat stressed. A lot of people will actually stress eat, which happens, everything in your body is, is gonna just, um, it's just gonna store it. Not going to use it for for fuel because it's, there's no there's no fire in the belly. So always staying in that parasympathetic state, which is the rest and digest. The other thing is where our body has a toxic overload, and if you reach that that load um, and you overload it, it's not going to function properly. And if you look at nowadays, um, Canada and the U.S. in the U.S. actually use something called glyphosate. Glyphosate is Roundup. And I test people for, um, in, like I test people all the time. Every patient that comes in gets tested. I'm like looking at their food because is your food natural or is it chemical? And they're like, oh, I only eat fruits and vegetables, but I'm finding out that they're actually eating chemical fruits and vegetables with a wax on it because it's full of glyphosates or herbicides or pesticides or insecticides. And then your body will actually not be able to identify that as food because what it's doing is those chemicals are actually interacting with the, uh, the sugar molecules in the food 
and creating an artificial sugar and your body doesn't have the receptors to break those down. So what happens is your body stores it in fat. Your body has some visceral fat or some body fat, but the rest of the fat goes in the brain. So we see a huge increase and rise in dementia, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and MS. Why? Because the heavy metal overload is stored in the brain. The neurons can't fire properly and sent messages are not being sent properly. The other thing is people can't lose weight, like actual fat, um, it's because those heavy metals are stored in fat cells. Well, your body doesn't want to release the heavy metals because it doesn't want to poison itself. Mm. So your body will actually use the stored, like the muscle, because it's clean. And so your body will actually start to eat the muscle that you just worked out instead of eating the fat. So people are so focused on calories and diet this, diet that, or low fat or low sugar, but what they actually need to do is get back to the garden and making sure that garden isn't contaminated. You know, and like that is is such a key thing. It's like I, it, that's probably one of the biggest anthems that I promote is just getting back into like just simply having some of your fruits and vegetables that you, you've created at home. Like, you know, having a garden, no matter what that looks like, or just, you know, understanding where your fruits and vegetables come from because like yeah and even like like root vegetables when i say like you're specifically everything that's in that ground when your root vegetables in that ground it is soaking that up all the time you know so it's like it's no wonder that you know like we have like all of these uh like these chemicals and toxins stored in our body because you say like look like we don't even know where this soil is or like where these um like these fruits and vegetables came from, like what soil they're grown in or like what's sprayed on them or what's around them or anything like that because they're coming from thousands and thousands of kilometers away. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I see this all the time with some farms and stuff like that and they wouldn't even give the water to their animals or to themselves but yet they're watering their crops with it. You know, and it's crazy. Like people don't realize that fruits and vegetables, they absorb everything. They absorb like all the pollutants and so you really, really, really want to nurture them. Like what are what are some of the things that like you've seen on the rise? Like you know you kind of outline like Alzheimer's and dementia and MS, but like like what are some of the things that we might not be so aware of? Like not like the hot ticket items that everybody's like talking about. Like what are some of the, the the things that you've seen that like people that are living with where they're not making that correlation? Um, mental health. People are not making the mental health correlation with their digestion. Your there are more neurotransmitters in your gut than in your brain. We're so focused on the actual brain in your head, they're not focusing on the second brain in your belly. And people are using their body as a trash can, and they are putting all kinds of garbage in their body, or even foods that they think are organic or natural, but they're not looking at other um, at other environmental factors like uh, the laundry soap they're using, or the makeup they're putting on their face, or the injections they're putting in their lips, or just different things like that, or they get headaches so they're going to go get Botox. Like There's just so many things, neurotoxins that we're constantly introducing in the skin, on the skin, in the mouth, you know? Um, it's, your, your skin is your biggest detoxing organ, and people don't realize it takes 26 seconds for anything on your skin to get absorbed into the bloodstream. And that will, in turn, affect the liver. If the liver has five hundred functions, and you're constantly toxing, like adding toxins to that liver every single day, it's gonna get tired. Those 500 functions are now gonna create a cascade domino effect and things are gonna start to go downhill and you wonder why your health is being affected every time you put your makeup on and people are not making the correlation. And if your body's having a hard time breaking down those toxins, the energy that your body's using to do other things will be focused on those. And a lot of times people will actually have mental health issues, not just from a, you know, a trauma, traumatic event, like yes, PTSD is very real, but also it's an imbalance 
in the gut floor. It's an imbalance in a vitamin mineral deficiency. It's an imbalance in uh, the endotoxins, or you know, even things as such as viruses, candida, fungus, mold, parasites. Like they all play a huge role in our mental health, and people don't even address those. And you feed them all the time. Well, and but the thing is, like, when are we ever educated? You know, like, you know, like, I think, like, you and I can sit across this table and be like, okay, well, this makes total sense. Like, this is, like, kind of an environment that we live in, like, all the time. But if I didn't, I can easily see how people say, like, well, I don't know. Because there is nobody talking about it. There is no conversation going on about it. But, and the problem is, is that this is how these conversations are happening. You know, so unless the people are specifically tuning into these kind of conversations, there's nobody talking about it on a grand enough scale, on a repetitive enough nature that people are going to be like understanding this is real. Like I really should take this into consideration and for long enough that we instill it into like our generations to come because like you think like for me, like I was raised, I would never go to a fast food restaurant now, but I was raised in an environment because there's kind of a part of everybody that was told that that's just okay. Like that's just what people do. You stop at McDonald's on the way home if you don't have time, you know, but like we need like that, that shift in that swing saying like, like these are the things like, no, you don't need those. And like, yes, we can use things like diet, sauna, like, you know, cold water version, like these kind of, you know, like these techniques feel help combat like the inflammation in our body and, you know, like, and take our healthcare from a more holistic standpoint, but we need more education behind it. You know, like, you know, there's no real outlet, like, is there any outlet that you know of that's screaming a loud enough anthem that you can steer people towards, or are you just as dumbfounded as the rest of us? Um, well, I'm trying to create an awareness. I do have a group of colleagues and practitioners where we are starting to try to create that ripple effect, but we do the whole health to home. And that's why in my assessments, um, most practitioners will do 20, 30 minute assessments. I do two hour assessments because I educate every single person that walks in that door because I know that they have a home that they're going to. And in that home are children or a spouse or a loved one, even a cat, you know? And so I wanna make sure that they are going to uh, take what I'm, even a little bit of what I'm teaching them and take it home. And then that's what causes them to wanna come back. I've had my practice for only a year it's all word of mouth and I have over 300 patients. So I think the health to home is really, really creating that ripple effect. Um, well, and that just goes to show how many people are trying to seek out this kind of care. You know, like that to me is like the huge win for you to be in practice for a year and have 300 patients. Like, like that says to me, it's like finally, like you see that tide starting to turn. Like when, when people walk through the door, when, when they see you, is that people who are just been like starving for this avenue or like, like what, what's the typical person who walks in the door? Like how do they like approach you? Um, like what's, what do you, what's the feel you get from? Are they really receptive of the message or are they still kind of fence sitting? Like, like what's the typical person like who walks in the door? 90% of my patients are helpless and they've exhausted all their resources and they're in, they're inflamed, they're in pain. Pain is the biggest motivator and they're ready to listen. And I love those ones because I get a quick fix with them. I have never been stumped. I deal with people with cancer, autoimmune, uh, fibromyalgia, lupus. I deal with digestive issues. I deal with mental health issues. I deal with the list goes on, you know, weight loss, detox, acne. And it's crazy how everything is always linked to the gut. So the one thing, the, the message that I always try to get across to people too is what inflammation looks like. You know, because inflammation looks a lot differently than I think what we've always been told inflammation looks like. Can you break down for us, like, inflammation 101, fill us in, drop it down, 
what it looks like, you know, where it stems from, and how to be able to spot inflammation in your body. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I'm actually doing a huge talk on inflammation and how it's linked to the root of all your diseases on November 24th. Um, Where's that at? Throw it in. Yeah, it's uh, 199580 A Avenue, Langley, the Westland Building, off 200th Street. And that's in Langley on the third floor. It's a free event. And I have another practitioner coming on board. Her and I are doing a PowerPoint. It's a free event. We're doing um, a talk on inflammation and how it's linked to all, the, all of your diseases and illnesses. Basically, inflammation is an imbalance in the body's biochemistry. So what, and that could look like so many factors. Inflammation could look like um, an acidic environment. It could look like an acidic relationship. It could look like acidic food, drink, um, an imbalance, different things like that. If you, um, and then it all builds up to the straw that broke the camel's back. So that one area that's becoming inflamed is usually not becoming inflamed by just one thing alone. It's usually a multiple of things, which is why it's so hard to diagnose. And so you really want to exhaust all of your factors. You want to look at the gut. You want to look at past injuries. You want to look at, you know, medications. You want to look at uh, the whole holistic pro approach, uh, body, mind, spirit. You know, is this person harboring a lot of uh, past traumas that they haven't dealt with? Is this person currently dealing with something? There's so many factors that play a role. That's why you have to always approach holistically um, to inflammation and really educate people because they didn't just get inflamed overnight. It's a buildup of cellular tissue over time. Uh, it's a buildup of uh, acidic cells over time. Uh, things that are alkaline are not inflamed. So if you're constantly alkalining the body and constantly alkalining the cells, having alkaline, I call them alkaline relationships, alkaline thoughts about yourself, right? Um, people beat themselves up all the time. You know, they look in a mirror and they pick themselves apart. They uh, go to work and they pick themselves apart. They wake up, they look at their phone, they're on social media, they pick themselves apart. We are like the biggest bully to ourselves and we don't love ourselves enough. And what happens is if you don't love yourself, your body is going to react in, acidic, in an acidic way and that's actually going to build up inflammation. It's not always genetics. Genetics is only 10% and that's where I also do iridology, which is the study of the eye. And I'm looking at the genetic component. I also look at people's DNA because I want to see, you know, what the past has also been presented, like what carriers and what genetics have turned on from mom and dad. And are you feeding those potentials? People don't realize just because you genetically inherited doesn't mean that that's going to ruin your life or run your life. It's just a potential if you feed it. Yeah, and you know, and those are, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I think that we've also been taught that, you know, like we're genetically doomed. You know, like I've been passed on this, I've inherited these characteristics, there's nothing I can do about it, so what's the point of even trying? You know, but like we are starting to realize that now, like how like it is actually a pretty small factor and like we really can't arm ourselves with information, completely change our lives if we choose to. Yeah. Um, like, what are some of the trickle-down effects of having inflammation? Because the, the one thing that, um, like, you know, just the research that I've done and, like, what I've heard, so you basically have, like, this energy tank in your body. And, you know, call it, like, 100% for, like, you know, easy analogy. That when you have inflammation in your body, like, your energy goes to fighting that inflammation first. And then we're kind of left with the, the rest of that energy. So if you have massive inflammation in your body, you might have 
50, 60, 70% of your overall energy per se in a day going to fight this inflammation and we're only left with the rest. Mm -hmm. You know, like we could understand that this might be causing some of like the, like the lethargy that we see in our days, you know, like the depression, you know, like people lack of energy and then overstimulating with like caffeine and these energy drinks and this, that, and the next thing. Um, is that something that you agree with or? or 100%, is... yeah. You're always gonna have inflammation. People are actually afraid of inflammation and they're afraid of stress. Stress is actually a good thing and inflammation is a good thing. It means you're alive. Uh, but too much, it becomes a bad thing. So you always wanna have a little bit of resistance and you always wanna have a little bit of stress in the body because it keeps things on their toes. But too much exhausts your cells. So inflammation, yes, if you have a little bit of inflammation, that's actually your, um, that's part of your inflammatory response. That's part of your immune system. But when the body's immune system is now being compromised by food or environmental factors or different things like that, it doesn't go into battle with all its armor. And then what happens is the other guys, yes, they have all their armor and their tanks and stuff like that, but you're walking in with nothing. So over time, you're gonna have to really, really, really have a larger crowd or have um, more um, energy that you're gonna have to output to even try to keep up. And so what that's kind of like, we're kind of shooting ourselves in the foot if we're trying to constantly have a unbalanced diet or have a very toxic relationship, marriage, business relationship, different things like that, and still sustain um, a reduction of inflammation. It's just not possible. And then what is, what's the trickle down effect of this like onto things like your adrenal glands? Oh, your adrenal glands? Well, there's two parts of the central nervous system. There's the sympathetic, which is your fight or flight, and then there's the parasympathetic, which is your rest and digest and repair. So many people put themselves into the fight or flight. And so what's happening is your body is inflamed, the blood is moving outward to the extremities, the arms and legs, and, the, and even the eyes, right? Um, your body thinks that it's in a, it's in a false sense of, um, of fighting because it thinks there's a bear or something like that coming, so it's getting ready. And then all of a sudden your adrenals are sending out hormones to prepare for the, the run or the fight or whatever that may be. And when it realizes that it's a false alarm, then it actually will start to uh, rebel against you. And so eventually, if you keep calling on it, calling on it, calling on it, kind of like um, Little Red Riding Hood with the wolf, right? Uh, eventually the adrenal glands, they stop working for you. And so we can actually develop something called chronic fatigue syndrome. And the, when the way that people are, are not realizing that they're doing this every single day is they take a cup of coffee. Coffee is horrible in my opinion. It has a pH of five. It destroys your microbiome. It um, adds like so much acid to the body. It inflames the body. It depletes you of all your B vitamins and it exhausts your adrenal glands. Then you add a little bit of stress because now you're late to work. So now you're raising your cortisol. And then and you're, you're just, driving. And you're driving. And probably haven't eaten yet because you're rushing. And then you add in, you know, extra stressors throughout the day. Your body doesn't have a chance to even get into the rest and digest. Um, it's very acidic to be in a fight or flight state, uh, just because of uh, the, the way the immune system is being activated and the way uh, your blood and your glucose, like cortisol, draws glucose into the blood. So now your blood is getting thick and mucky. And if you have piping in your body, for example, which is your cardiovascular system and you've got thick, muddy, concrete blood running through there, do you think that's gonna play a role in your heart over time? Of course. So what does the doctor do? They put you on blood pressure medication for stress or statins, and what they don't realize is it's because you've been in the fight or flight for too long. 
Other things that will do that too is uh, carbonic acid buildup. I love what Dr. Sebi talks about when he talks about carbonic acid. People are consuming way too much starch, sugar. Uh, everything breaks down into something called carbonic acid, which actually takes your red blood cells and makes them sticky, which in my uh, practice we call relu. Now what this does, it's like turning your blood into concrete. It does uh, dilute itself over time, but then while it's running through your body, pump after pump and through the heart, it's really hard on the heart. So people over time, um, that exerts a lot of energy, and people over time, that can exhaust the adrenals, that can exhaust um, overall function of the body, and also it's really hard for nutrients to even get to where they need to be because they've got to bypass all that mucky blood. And can we see this even just by like an elevated uh, like resting pulse rate, you know, like where like you feel like you're in better shape, you should have a lower resting pulse rate than, you know, like what you might be showing. Like is that one way to be able to like quickly diagnose something like that or is there no uh, correlation and causation there? Uh, I always, I'm a visual person so I always need to actually do, like check someone's blood to see where they're at because some people are actually being, they're actually overworking themselves. So a lot of people are either working out too much where they're putting in, because that's also a form of stress. So there's so many different factors that could be affecting the blood and the cortisol and the adrenals and stuff like that. I always say moderation, everything in moderation, even when it comes down to your exercise, when it comes down to your eating habits, when it comes down to the amount of stress that you will let allow into your life. Um, it's really good to be mindful of your levels and where you're at. And if you do feel like you're getting a elevated heart rate or um, different things like that, that's an indication that, you know, you don't want to be there for too long. You are in the sympathetic nervous state. Yes, exercise is good for you. It actually fights off 13 different types of cancer, but it has a bad side too if you overdo it. Um, another topic that I want to get into here, and this is definitely in the weeds, uh, cholesterol. Because there's so much misinformation about cholesterol and cholesterol like research has come so far in the last five years and I feel like when people go um, to like Western practitioners now they're still kind of stuck in like that lens of like what cholesterol used to be versus like what it is now and you know when you go to the doctor and there's like well your cholesterol levels are high and then everybody like freaks out and it's this big issue so um, break down cholesterol. Yeah so people think cholesterol is actually from too much fat it's actually from too many carbs so what's happened is you have something called endothelial cells. We are born with seven football fields of endothelial cells. By the age of 25, most people only have one football field left. The reason why is because they get ripped off the wall of the artery, arteries, capillaries, and veins over time by something called sticky carbonic acid. That's from your grains. So what's happening is people are consuming way too many grains, and I don't mean carbs. Carbs are in a lot of plants and a lot of uh, you know, vegetables and fruit. I don't mean carbs. There's good carbs, bad carbs. I mean grains. That's your rice. That's your buckwheat. That's your, uh, your whole wheat. That's your gluten. There's this whole fad right now of everyone's going gluten-free, but I actually tell my patients to go grain-free because that's what's going to reduce your cholesterol. Um, you actually want to up your plant fat. So that's what my term is. That's my scientific term is plant fat and avoid the animal fats. It's the animal fats that are actually uh, carcinogenic. They are actually full of endotoxins and that's what's going to raise your cholesterol because it's it's just toxins that now are entering the blood then they're going to stick to the grains which is the carbonic acid and bind to the wall of the um of the capillary artery or vein building up plaque building up cholesterol 
And people don't realize too, if you're not drinking enough water on top of it, well then now you've got mucky blood, you've got the perfect components or the perfect building blocks to build up plaque. So what does the doctor do? They'll put you on blood pressure medications or different like, things like that or things for your cholesterol. And they don't realize that it's all diet related. How did you get there? So my recommendation for everybody listening would be for cholesterol, if you do have high cholesterol, number one, look at your stress for stress, stressful factors. That would be like looking at the relationships you have around you. So holistically looking at your relationships, looking at your coffee consumption, alcohol consumption. Um, do you smoke? Do you vape? Do you, uh, you know, induce um, any sort of uh, marijuana into your body? Not CBD, I'm talking strictly THC. Um, you know, what about your uh, pharmaceutical medications, different things like that. And then looking at your grains. So if you just want to look nutritionally, that's it, nothing else, cut out the grains and cut out uh, the, the carcinogenic fats. And that would be anything from an animal and so solely focus on plant fat. That's your avocados, your nuts, your seeds, your chia. Um, and if you want to replace your grains, replace it with quinoa. It's actually a seed. Making sure everything's organic, of course. But yeah, cutting out the grains and cutting out the um, the animal fats will totally reduce uh, cholesterol. And you were talking about the, the animal fats um, combining with the grains, um, you know, like, but and that kind of being like an issue. Now, if you had, say, like animal fats without the grains, is that still an issue? Or like, where does the severity come or where does this, the severity lessen in, in that environment? So it's never a perfect A plus B formula. Everyone's unique. So you always want to just cut out both to be safe. Uh, sure, some people can probably get away with a little bit, but then you're also building the toxins, the endotoxins, right? And so it's going to still put you into that fight or flight, which is still going to push in the cortisol, which is going to bring in the glucose, which there you go, you've got your glucose. And so it's really good to just probably cut them both out. Um, there's a documentary right now on Netflix that I recommend called Game Changers. Changers. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. Pretty so, hot ticket item right now. A yeah. lot of controversy coming out of that one, right? So Super interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like, what do you think about like the research, especially when it comes down to, so say like, let's eliminate carbohydrates, uh, well, it's not carbohydrates, grains. Um, from the equation, we look at just like like animal meat, so then which would incorporate animal fats, you know. So, um, but if we look at that in conjunction with the, the inactivity of people, because there's still the argument that's out there that you know, like the the vast majority of people are being tested are people who aren't quote unquote like what would fall into like an athletic category consistently through the course of a lifetime. You know, so, but they are people who traditionally are a little bit more sedentary people who fall into a more Western lifestyle. So when it comes down to like people in general, like how do you feel like those things come into play because of the amount of years that we can uh, like predate that we ate meat and animal fats for? Like, you know, cause it kind of seems like, you know, obviously we don't have data. It goes back like hundreds of years or thousands of years to be able to see, okay, well, what were people's cholesterol levels like? But the one thing they do know, even if you are consuming like animal products and which would then have animal fats that people's cholesterol levels can be lower because of like the activity you know, like where do you fall in on that like how do you weigh in on that part of the conversation yeah so there's two different types of people there's people that are very low activity and high activity you have to eat according to your activity level but you don't have to eat things that are full of toxins and stuff like that and so um what we're actually extracting food for is energy. So whether that be a carbohydrate, a protein, or a fat, right? The molecular structure it breaks down to at the very end 
is ATP. And that's what we're using for energy and fuel. So if we can do that in the least amount of uh, steps as possible, ideally that would be plant-based diet. Because if you're putting a middleman in there, which would be uh, oh, you're going like some hashtag turns on game changers there. I like it. I like you're it. going through like the middleman, which is flesh, which we enjoy, right? And it has some great components to it. You're actually only going up to the food chain, which is the ATP. That's the part you want. So we just want to be mindful that we are getting a very balanced macronutrient diet if we are going to be a high functioning human being. But if we're just functioning on a uh, psychological level and not so much physiological then we don't really need to have all that stored glucose we don't really need to have all that stored fat you could probably just well not probably you could just uh, keep your uh, your plant fat high have a medium level of protein and keep your carbohydrates at a level where you just you feel balanced and that's where a nutritionist would come in. You never want to just self-diagnose because in my opinion, food is still medicine. And people are you can like people don't realize you can prescribe food. And you can also overeat something or undereat something according to what is going on in your life and people need to also realize that there's no one diet fits all. There's no one diet that fits you for life. You don't just stay on the same diet for life and think that expect the same outcome because your life is not um, linear. I love the first time that I heard that. Like, I will never forget where I was the first time um, that I heard that, like, your diet should be extremely transient. Because, like, we have, like, we've always thought, okay, well, I'm going to find this one fits all solution for me. And, like, that's what I'm going to stick with. And that's where my success is going to lie. And 60 years from now, I'm still going to be eating the same weight and I'm still going to be awesome because of it. But, because um, it was so refreshing. It was, like, it was really refreshing. And then, like, ditching the whole concepts of eating every two or three hours, these small, like, well balanced meals, like, that was refreshing because it's just like a lot of expectation on people like how do I eat this much food how do I carve that time in my day I don't have enough time to be able to prepare all this food you know like I just I love how it is slowly started to like evolve into simplicity mm-hmm. because like we really overcomplicated like eating and I think that we're when we come down to it, it's like, well, the one thing that I always said to people, and I still say is that, like, okay, well, if you're gonna eat meat for simplicity, where if you look at it from like an amino acid profile, where I know that I can, I can rest assured because I don't have to find this combination of things to be able to bump up the amino acid profile, then fine. If that's your selling case, that's your selling case, but it still comes back to like, it is technically just kind of lazy because there is all these other options. And then you get into the other side of the conversation where it's just like, well, if you look at how like we were raised regionally, you know, like hundreds of years ago when we didn't have access to food on a regular basis at all, well, we didn't even have the amount of um, variety that we have to be able to even make complete amino acid profile. So like, obviously there's something like in our body, even if we didn't have um, access to um, essential amino acids, because which are the ones that we only really need, but like, how does that, like, where do you weigh in on that? Like, well, we didn't have access to some of these foods of what we need, or like the concentrations of the essential amino acids would be so low, but these people were still really healthy. They were still strong enough. They were still climbing trees to grab food. They were still chasing food down. They were still protecting themselves and building like huts and tents and lean-tos to live in. Like, like arguably, like they were still fully functioning like human beings, but they just didn't have the resources or I guess kind of like my, my goal point behind this is like, when do we get to the point where we're um, a byproduct of too much information? Well, you also have to think about, I'm just going to mention one thing too, is 
you're talking about before 1980. And what people need to realize is one, what was introduced in 1980 is genetically modified food and glyphosate. Um, Monsanto came out with glyphosate and genetically modified food for good reasons, but over time it has actually become very, very uh, dangerous to our health. So back then, before 1980, yes, people were able to eat all these different varieties of fruits and vegetables or miss a bunch of different things in their diet, but relatively they were healthy. Were they trying to become bodybuilders? No. So it really depends on your outcome as well. Uh, and it depends on how you want your body to look and, and how you want your muscles to configure. But if you're just looking for a lean overall health, we need to keep it simple. It, we really do. Um, and you need to listen to your body because people are like, oh, developing all these allergies, but people don't realize that your body will speak to you. If something doesn't feel right, don't eat it. If people are like, oh, I shouldn't have eaten that. Yeah, you shouldn't have, so don't eat it. You hear that all the time, but people would rather take a, you know, some sort of pill to, you know, silence the communication between your body and you because they don't want to compromise what tastes good or what, uh, over what feels good. And sometimes people are actually using food to um, silence an emotional suppression. Well, and that's what I say to people too. I'm like, just stop lying to yourself. Like really, that's as simple as it gets and you don't need to make it any more complicated than like, like we know. Like, you know, when you eat that ice cream and you feel like shit, you feel like shit because you ate the ice cream. Like, let's just face it, why are you eating the ice cream? Yeah. Like that is, this is literally as simple as what it gets. And when it comes to ice cream, for example, uh, are you eating that to gain muscle? Are you eating that to uh, help you sleep? Or are you eating that because you're stressed or because you wanna feel better because you had a bad breakup or there's so many different things. Get to the root emotionally why you're having that ice cream or does it just en are you just enjoying it? It really depends on, I want people to look at the, the inter interaction they're having with their food and the relationship they're having with their food and, and why, what the trigger is. Food triggers are huge. Um, I talk about them all the time but I want people to really start to pay attention to the foods that they're choosing and why they're choosing it. What I do is I do a seven day food diary for all my, most of my patients, not all of them, but the ones that are really struggling, say with uh, overeating or different things like that, um, I will actually get them to write out their foods and how it made them feel and why they chose that food, right? It's kind of like uh, you picked an outfit for the day. Well, why did you pick that outfit? How did it make you feel when you put it on? Well, the same thing with our food. It, it's nourishing something spiritually, emotionally, physically inside you, not just nutritionally. Um, and so I want to know why, but I also want to make it, um, I want to present it to my, my patient as well. See, and it's interesting that you kind of bring that up because the one thing that I found in my life over the course of time is that the more I become satiated by my food, I'm actually, I can carry that into the entire rest of my life too. Like everything just kind of seems better. Like, and when you say like, you know, like food has this kind of responsibility to like our mental and emotional and our, and our physical health. And like, we really just need to adopt that and to understand it because I really notice that it, it is uncanny to me. Like if I eat something that like, you know, like, like say 70% dark chocolate, for example. Now, like before when I first started eating dark chocolate years ago, I was like, how do people eat this? Like, this is great. Now, when I eat 70% dark chocolate, most of the time, I'm like, wow, candy is so sweet. You know, but then if I eat something, like I eat 
more the very rare, but like when I do and like I wake up in the morning, like I just feel like, you know, like everything's out of flux. It's the same thing. It's like, well, you know, like what am I going to wear versus I just put clothes on, you know, like in all, like the world just seems a little bit different. But I think unless if you want to be that in tune with yourself, it's hard to be able to pick out those things about your life and correlate them back to like, is what you ate yesterday or is what you just ate and how much of a strong influence those things have over like our everyday life. Like food is like our driver of everything. I actually have a really cool tool that actually links food to emotions. And it will actually show me that you've been eating grains, which has been targeting uh, your, your central nervous system, your vagus nerve, and so it's provoking anxiety. And people are like, all of a sudden we cut out the grains and they no longer have anxiety. It's, it's not always, but it's really interesting when that does happen. Or anger with uh, dairy, you know, just different things like that. And so people, um, they are starting to make the connections, but they just need to be educated um, visually, um, kinesthetically. They need to apply it, um, but they also just need to be, like you had mentioned earlier, we need to repeat it over and over and over and create a habit. And uh, I think that's what's kind of happening with our health industry is people are starting to wake up. And, and like I, I see it because I feel like people want to be able to have the conversation more where like, like the intrigue is there. Like I'm starting to see these other people like get these results and I hear these other people talking about it. And that's the one thing that I would say to everybody that I work with is that I don't want you to go out there and I don't want you to force feed these people, like sit them down in this chair and I'm gonna tell you why this is there. Just, just live it. Because your passive education by living it and feeling good and like, you know, being happy and like presenting this to like people get drawn to it. Like we see it and then it's like, well, what are you doing? And like, that's when you know, like when people are like fundamental changes there, like it's good to stick this time because like somebody is like, suck that out there. Just like, like, I want this now. So um, let me ask you this, like um, you just because you brought like the vagus nerve, like let's talk a little bit about like SIBO and the effect that it has like on the vagus nerve and like where mental health comes into play as a result of that. Well, SIBO, um, so basically when the microbiome is disturbed, the body is already shifted. And so oh, actually, hold on, yeah, let's back up. Let's, yeah. let's, let's explain to everybody like how you get SIBO in the first place or like where, well, like what's the, like the, um, like the cause of it and like what SIBO even stands for. Um, <laughs> so small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. It's basically when, um, the small intestine is getting overgrown of bad bacteria, which is going to throw off the pH. Bad bacteria is going to defecate. It's gonna it's gonna steal your nutrients. There's a lot of things that are gonna happen, um, and so gases and stuff like that can build up. Now, when you start to have a, uh, a, a situation where now the small intestine is becoming inflamed, which is the one of the bigger areas for absorption of vitamins and minerals, vitamins and minerals can no longer get absorbed. So what's going to happen is that intestinal wall is going to be compromised and toxins, endotoxins from the bacteria is going to seep out and people are going to get sick. You're going to have a lot of symptoms. And so everything is connected to, from the gut is, uh, sorry, the intestine, intestine is connected to the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is connected all the way up to the brain. So I always talk about how the, the transverse colon and the, um, is always linked up to uh, the gut brain connection. And so, uh, these signals can actually go from the intestine all the way up to the brain and be a positive or negative response. Well, if you have an army of bad bacteria that is overgrowing and populating and 
just wreaking havoc on inside the intestines, well, all of their byproducts are going to go up into the brain. The brain is going to send those impulses, the messages throughout the body. I almost call it like, um, like the telephone game, right? Or uh, interior gossip, right? It's just become so toxic to the body because those messages are no, are going to become polluted. And like, like, what do we see that stuff from? Like, like, what are like the the mental health issues? What was the impact on our brain from that? The impact. Um, brain fog, uh, you can get all kinds of um, anxiety, depression, uh, sleeping issues, libido issues, weight gain, hormonal issues, reproductive issues, candida, fungus, mold, bacteria, parasites. Your pH is below a 7.35 at this point, so the body is now in acidic state. It's in the fight or flight. Um, acid and inflammation is on overload. Um, toxins are not going to be, everything's being compromised. It's a domino effect. So you're never just going to have one symptom. You're going to have a multiple. And the longer you leave it, the sicker, the sicker you get. And if you don't treat it, um, in my opinion, uh, naturally, then you're only putting a bandaid on the problem and it's going to arise in a different form and it's going to express itself in a different form. Okay. So then I guess like along those same lines, um, you know, because everybody is pretty well educated or what they think they are well educated on what probiotics are right so but also a lot of people don't realize that the probiotics that they're consuming are no longer live bacterial cultures um but i feel like that part of like education besides that that people are missing is the prebiotics yeah so break it down for us well i'm actually going to add something to that there's prebiotics probiotics and postbiotics People don't even know what postbiotics are. So I'll talk about the prebiotics. Prebiotics is plant food for the probiotics. Now you have good bugs and bad bugs. Bad bugs eat everything that is um, considered acidic. Um, that would be like uh, your sugars, your meats, your dairies, different things like that. Uh, your your uh, good probiotics, the good bugs, would be eating things like plants fiber fermentation. Um, that's what's going to alkaline the body. That's what's going to provide good nourishment for the body and balance your hormones, your immune system, have the building blocks for overall gut health. Then you've got the postbiotics. And like I had mentioned, you know, um, they are alive. And so they pee, they poop. And so that is going to good stuff in, good stuff out, bad stuff in, bad stuff out. So if the fact that they're already present is considered uh, toxic, do you think this stuff coming out of them is going to be toxic? It's going to be even more toxic. And then because they populate so fast, you're going to have all this these endotoxins that are actually going to pass through the permeable membrane of the intestinal wall, wreak havoc in the blood, and circulate through the liver, the, all the organs, through the brain, all the neurons, and now you have a big mess to clean up. And like, like, what are what are some of the, the the effects? Like, you know, like how can we identify with this? Like, 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 is it strictly just like, um, like in lab testing, or like, like, what are some of the things that people can look for? What are some of the things that people can do? Okay, first of all, if you want to introduce a good probiotic into the body, there's three different kinds of uh, levels. So there's animal strain, which is something that is in your yogurt. It is in there for you to break down the yogurt, but then you poop it out. It doesn't actually embed in the intestinal wall, so it actually does nothing for you. Um, it's just enjoyment. Then you have the synthetic strand, which is what your uh, Western medicine prescribe you, which in my opinion is garbage. And then you have your uh, your human strand, which is um, 
which is actually going to affect your body in a positive way. It's actually going to go in and it's going to embed itself in the intestinal wall. Now, you need to work with a holistic practitioner or Eastern medicine practitioner to know that there are 400 kinds of probiotics. I don't care about how many billions of strains. I want to know if you're taking the right one for the right symptom. There are, for example, bacillus coagulans is a sporous probiotic. You have to take that for leaky gut because it's going to actually blow up the endothelial cells as they became porous. People don't realize that you could be taking the wrong probiotic for the wrong symptom. There's so many different types of cultured bacteria and so many different types of bacteria and you need to make sure that you're taking the right one. And that's where you have, you don't want to self-diagnose. Yeah, and it comes in, a, and I think that like we want to just walk into like Superstore and go over to the probiotic section and pull something off the shelf and get ourselves a pat on the back and say, you know, at least I'm taking my probiotic now, right? Um, so like, what what would be the, the disadvantage, and, the, and like, do you know how people can even tell whether or not the probiotics they're taking, simply because they're taking a probiotic period, um, that their pro probiotics are live versus dead or is it beneficial for them to take the probiotics if they're not live bacterial cultures anymore because they obviously can't tell it they're not cracking on the microscope to be able to see if that they're live or dead um like is there a point of like taking them it like kind of fills in there yeah so it's just like you would never walk into a pharmacy pick something off the shelf and be like i'm gonna try this you always want to work with a professional uh, you always want to take a recommendation from a professional, not your own self-recommendation, because you don't know if you're just guessing. Um, I always tell people, when people ask me about probiotics, I always tell them that there is good quality and bad quality, and that you should feel your probiotics working within a couple of days. If you feel nothing, and if you've had to keep taking them, then there's a problem. You also want to make sure that you're cycling your probiotics. You want to put a lot of diversity into the, into the gut flora and the microbiome, because if you're just having the same probiotics, well then you're not going to be building up enough uh, genetics in the microbiome. Uh, just like bacteria, how they develop resistance genes and they're always uh, adapting. You want to make sure that your intestinal system is ad adapting too. So constantly introducing different strains of probiotics. I, it, you know, I, my recommendation, start off with, with a bacillus coagulin and then work off from there because at least now your intestinal wall isn't permeable, it's not um, porous. So you're not going to have that leaky gut anymore. You want to strengthen up those endothelial cell cells. So start off with that and then go on to um, different human strain probiotics, but just don't stay on the same strain for more than a month. So I, I would always say like go on, um, after you do the bacillus coagulants, go on something and constantly do rotations. Uh, if you just took a bunch of antibiotics or on, if you're on birth control, you're taking pharmaceutical drugs, making sure that you're on a higher dose of probiotics because those have something called antibiotics in them. And, and so what it's going to do is it's going to kill off your probiotics. So now you need to double up. The other thing, and you can't take them at the same time. The other thing that you also want to do is, um, is you want to really, really take breaks so that you can allow the population to kind of take its course and be mindful of if you're traveling and just different things like that. So, um, you know, because you kind of like touched on it there again too, and I know that all these are slight segues into because we're just kind of like walking down the line, but um, like has, in your opinion, has leaky gut always been as prevalent as what it is now or like why is it so prevalent or are people kind of self-diagnosing or getting misdiagnosed to make it seem like leaky gut is such a, a big thing right now? I think leaky gut has gotten, uh, it, it's, leaky gut takes work. It takes time to build up in the body. Uh, your intestinal wall is quite strong, but it oh, it's like the straw that broke the camel's back. Like I had said, 1980, a lot of toxins came into our food system that builds up in the body. 
And so people's uh, bodies were not designed to break down those chemicals and we don't have the receptors to break them down. So when they do come across our endothelial cells, the endothelial cells nine times out of 10 will lose. Um, we have strong immune system, but we don't have strong other cells. And so what's happening is there is becoming a rise in gut health and we need to do gut rehab. We need to rebuild our guts because they, the cells are being attacked by so many different factors and now we're starting to notice that most people have leaky gut and almost every single one of my patients have leaky gut. Now, we might not diagnose it uh, because it doesn't follow a certain criteria in a certain book, but there's so many uh, correlating factors. And so if it's interesting. Sometimes you don't always have to know the exact term of the diagnosis, but if you treat the root cause, the symptoms always disappear. Yeah, see, and, and I think that kind of comes into play with this too, is that um, I wish, and I'm sure that you do too, that like one day that we're all going to stop lying to ourselves and, and understand like like Taco Bell, McDonald's, Tim Hortons, all this food, like, like the damage is actually causing to our body. Um, like, why do you feel like we can all turn such a blind eye to it? Like, do you, when, when people come in and they seek out your care, like, is it, is this something that they're not doing anymore? Is it easy to convince them to stop? Because, you know, like, we need to kind of start sharing some, like, personal quest secrets, how people kind of got off this, like, this food that is basically slow poison for our bodies. And, like, like I don't, I don't feel like just education is enough. Like, we can, we can talk until we're blue in the face, but it's, like, real-life stories for people. Like, yes, I did struggle with this. Yes, I fought it for years. Yes, I didn't want to believe that this food was that bad. You know, but like it really is. This is how it impacted my life. This is how far the impact got, and this is how long it took me to crawl back out of that rabbit hole. It's really the person that's delivering the message. So, not to you know, um, I guess what's the term? Blow my own horn. But I am really good at delivering the message visually and verbally when I have a patient in front of me. I show them their blood, I explain to them, I take the time to break it down in layman's terms so that they understand, and then I let them experiment on their own. I never tell them what to do, I only give recommendations. The reason why is because we naturally want to rebel. And if someone's telling us something to do, like telling you what to do, well, naturally we just don't want to listen. But if it's our own idea, well now we're ready to listen. So I always make my patients think it's their idea, number one. Number two, I show them where they're at, with the state of their blood, the state of their hormones, the state of their toxins. I can actually pull up on the screen and show them they have glyphosates, they have herbicides. I ask them that, you know, do you consume dairy? No, I don't touch dairy. All of a sudden, I'm looking at their intestinal mucosal membrane, and I'm like, your IgA is yeah. super inflamed. You eat dairy, and they're like, and they have, they just, they're dumbfounded. They have no idea that I would even know that. They thought they could just sneak that in there. So. Because we're used to being able to bullshit our way through yep. diet. You know, like yep. when you walk into the doctor, it's like, oh, you're having a dairy. No, okay, that that um, that box is checked. They don't eat dairy. Like, but the only thing is because like Western care isn't in your face. Yeah. Like you basically can just like bullshit your way through to be able to get whatever you want and then walk out the door. But it's hard when we're forced with that when people are like, whoa, is that where medicine is? Well, when did medicine get to be this way? It's like, well, it always has been. It's yep. just this isn't the type of medicine that's offered to us. Yeah. But like it must be quite the eye-opening experience for people when you put it on them like that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I back them up in the corner. I don't hold back. Um, it's always a safe environment, but 
if someone is lying to me, I will know I have everything in front of them. And then they start to realize that they're only going to get better if they put it all in. And so what I'll do is I'll make them the recommendations. Nine times out of 10, they'll listen to it for a couple of weeks. And then because I'm working with the number one herbal company in the world, the products are strong. If they do go back to any eating habits or whatever like that, I always get a call and they always say, oh my gosh, my guts are inflamed. You were right. So I always hear people following my program and then they go and they have a cheat day and they feel like garbage for about three or four days and they realize that maybe it's the food. So what do they do? They go back on my program and then they have another cheat day and they feel the same and they're starting to make their own connections that maybe it's the food. And so pain, See, pain is a motivator. Yeah, and like this is to me, like to me, I personally find this, and I don't know whether you agree with this or not, but like I can't stand how we're still convinced that we should have cheat days. Yeah, it's it's a like, lifestyle. Like, There's no what diet. What are you talking about? Like yeah. that doesn't make sense. Like it does not make sense to me. Like, do you sometimes drive with the doors off your car with no seatbelt on? You know, like do you drive backwards on the highway some days? Like it just it makes no sense and like we we know enough now to realize that like cheat days make no sense because for the number one reason that like your cheat day does not stop there you go to bed that night and it's not like you just have this miracle that happens overnight and you wake up the next morning and you're just like well that was a good day and i can just continue on from here like it's not even remotely close to that like by the time you get to your next cheat day that you feel like you deserve that you're just putting yourself back into like the your manic and depressive episodes from like the shit food that you're eating then like the inflammation like well i can't understand why my back is so sore and it's just like well i could probably tell you why i mean it's like oh my knees are aching again well i could probably tell you why that is too but you know like but again like we just like well, I deserve it you know like I worked hard this week oh I worked hard today it's been a long day today oh it's been two weeks oh it's been five days like okay well I'll just go more days next time without my cheat day it's like like that is just it's so absurd to me but it's still preached and promoted from like the rooftops mm-hmm. compromise people always want to compromise they always want the easy way out they don't want to put in the work um, you will fall off the wagon if you're trying something new because this is something new. You're not a professional yet. But if you wanna become a professional at your eating habits, then you need to start creating habitual regime. And so whenever somebody is uh, telling me, oh, well, can I have a cheat day or anything like that? I I always look at them a little funny and I'm like, you're going through digestive rehab right now. You're going through rehab. If you went and you became a heroin addict, and all of a sudden you've been five days clean and you just want to shoot up well do you think that that's something that you should do do you think that that's going to be self-sabotage of course self-sabotage your body's a temple you don't want to do that so why are we doing that with food it's because we have a different uh outlook on food but we don't realize that we're starting to build a very negative relationship with food and food is a beautiful tool to make to nourish your body to heal your body but it's it's being abused and it's being tainted with, and it's being, the, the, mo- the molecules are being reconfigured for other needs, and so we need to get back to the basics of food is medicine, and I'm gonna keep beating that one over because it's not meant to, um, to, be, to be abused. It's not meant to be, um, to, be, to be changed, you know, back to basics, like you said. Yeah, and so, Given kind of like, I'm sure that we could generalize like how bad some people's cheat days are. Just like real sky high view. Like in your opinion, how many days, and I would like to emphasize that it's days, it's not 
hours or minutes that it would take for somebody to quote unquote recover on just a very basic level, you know, from like that cheat day that they had. Like, I'm not talking like full recovery, but I'm talking like just like general recovery from that. Like how many days do you think that would be? Three to four days. Three to four days? Over 72 hours. Uh, if someone's really struggling with their joints and all of a sudden they have a cheat day and they eat a bunch of greens, that carbonic acid is going to wreak havoc on your joints. You're going to feel it for a few days and you're going to have grain brain, brain fog, bloating, all kinds of stuff. And your body, yes, your body has a transit time where yes, you will defecate it out usually within 12 hours. Hopefully people go to the bathroom every day, but that, um, those building blocks were still being, are still circulating through your body for about more than 72 hours. Yeah. So you still need to you still need to to let that uh, burn off burn, burn out um, before you even notice that thing, your system has settled down. Well, and that's even under the presumption that that seventy two hours has been like quote unquote like a good path to follow, or like you know like that you haven't entered other things into your system like during that time too that might stifle that seventy two hour process as well. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I, I think that like it like I'm. I'm I'm really happy for to hear like how just like adamant you are that like you always want to come back to like that food is medicine, mm-hmm. you know, because like we've just been so steered off that path and like, and it really has been like always through like the thousands of years that they like, go, you know, I, well, I guess depending on like what you believe in, like I'm like millions of years to get to this point, but, um, but like that's, it's like who we are and like what we're designed to do. And like, like, like you said, like food has a responsibility to our advice, you know, and it should never be these like five pound food challenges on TV that we watch or like the, you know, 30,000 calorie precise cakes and stuff. Um, this is all my like long winded segue into like, how do you feel about food companies being legally allowed to have clinical psychologists on staff to be able to help design foods that trap people into eating them? I think it's horrible. Um, I think that, but you know what? If you can become a master at your own eating habits, it's actually, I believe there's actually a pro and con to everything. It's terrible that we do it, but it's also, uh, if you can overcome that and you can uh, withstand the temptation, you are actually gonna build a unique set of skills that you can apply to other things in your life and you actually become a master. If you can master your food and your health, you can master other places in your life too. And I, you know, I think that's like absolutely true because like the thing that we're faced with the most is the food, the food war, the food battle, like however you want to label it because, you know, like food and vanity are the things that are just like pumped into us like all day long. And that's the one thing that I repeatedly try to remind people like for myself is like, I really could care less how my body looks. I need it to work. I need it to function. Like I want to do everything all the time. And that's the number one driving force for me into like understanding what I'm putting into my body. Because like I, if you're just like, let's go run 20K right now, I'm like, okay, let's go. Like I want to be able to do that at that time on the drop of a diamond. I would never want to stand in my own way of being able to do something like that. And it's just like, yeah, like that Slurpee, that donut, you know, like that Starbucks this, and you know, like just like that McDonald's or like that pizza, like it all just inhibits you from being able to literally get out of bed every single morning and live like a good quality life. And that's exactly what it is. You totally hit it there. And that's what I tell all my patients that want to argue about, oh, well, you know, we're every people are living to be over a hundred nowadays or up to a hundred and you know, and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yes, but what about the quality of the life? You know, and that's where I want to hit home is that 
people are actually living longer and having a poorer quality of life. People in their 20s are already developing arthritis or digestive issues or mental health issues. Is that a good quality? That never happened before the 80s. So at least not often. And why is it becoming more and more of a pandemic? The other thing that you had mentioned was um, about uh, people want to feel limitless. You don't want to feel trapped as a prisoner in your own body based on foods that now you have eaten that are creating an in, a negative interaction with your body and those foods are limiting you and so that can actually turn into a self cycle of shame and feeling like a prisoner in your own body and then you actually will start to self-sabotage and that's when you're paving the way for uh, a habitual self-sabotaging cycle that is only going to bring pain to your cells to your body and to your mental health yeah absolutely um this has been like a whole lot of information to people uh for people to digest and um i think i'd probably like to wrap things up there just so that um they can keep on just coming back to it but i'd be absolutely honored if you'd come on again because there's just there's a lot more upstairs in that brain yours that i wanted uh, wanted to be able to to pick through and stuff but i also want people to be able to get a hold of you and so we need like all of your contact information like social media handles um like web address email anything you're willing to give anything you're willing to share um and again you've already kind of alluded to like one talk that you have coming up like bring that back on or any other ones that you have coming up sure so um i'm ariel jarvis i'm the natural health practitioner herbalist and nutritionist at vitality wellness center we're located in langley which is off 200 street at the westland building the address is 19951 avenue you can find us on facebook at vitality wellness center or instagram at vitality underscore wellness center or wellness underscore you can also contact our office at 604-217-2588 awesome well thank you very much for coming on the show today i really appreciate it yeah thank you so much